This is Trepwire Week in Review for the week ending June 16th, 2023. I'm Haley Keen with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Lonnie Hendry, Head of CRE and Advisory Services. It was exactly a year ago today that the Fed announced its first 75 basis point increase. At the time, the move pushed the Fed funds rate up to 1.75%, and it came just after CPI came in at over 9%. This week, it was CPI and the Fed that were on everyone's minds. On Tuesday, headline CPI came in at 4%, which was in line with expectations, and the Federal Reserve held rates steady for the first time since early 2022. And we also saw retail sales come in with an unexpected twist. Manus, is this it, or will we still be talking CPI and Fed funds rates throughout the second half of the year? Well, it's interesting to say all that, Haley. I thought that the 1.75% Fed funds rate was quite quaint. We forget very quickly how low rates were just 12 months ago. Now we've tripled that level. So there was a lot of news this week. We joked last week that it was a slow news week, and it was. It was the eye of the storm between the debt ceiling and what was to be a very, very busy economic data week. So we started off the week with CPI, the fact that it's now at 4% flat, the headline number versus a level that was over 9% at one time is terrific. We're trending in the right direction. As you mentioned, the number met expectations. The downside of the report remains the core and in the core category, it's really food that remains the outlier there that is naggingly high. That word naggingly shows up a lot in the press these days when we talk about core CPI. 5.3% still was in line with analyst expectations, but I'm sure that that's well above where the Fed would like to see that core number, and it probably will trigger another rate hike before the summer is over. They may be done at that point to, to answer your question. We followed that up with the pause. Listeners will know that called for a hike. I was in the minority last week thinking that the Fed would surprise us with a hike. I thought the wealth effect that we've seen from the higher stock market, as well as other things, might lead to a surprise, but it didn't. Uh, but they were kind of hawkish in their language and said that there will be another hike or two or more down the road to get that inflation number down towards 2%. And then today, the big surprise, as you teased, was retail sales. And the expectation had been for a modest decline. Instead, we got a, a decent increase in retail sales. Bank of America called it. They seem to be the retail sales whisperers there. They seem to know exactly what's going on, uh, probably a function of their credit card data. But that was a pleasant surprise, and the markets melted up on Thursday. So by and large, I think it was a good week for economic data, not too hot, not too cold, and the markets responded accordingly. Yeah, I thought it was interesting if you listen to what Powell said when they said they were going to pause. A couple of takeaways from my perspective this week, Manus. One, he said the full effects of the current tightening haven't been felt yet, so their aggressive posture over the last 12-plus months hasn't really felt been felt all the way through the process. And so taking a pause maybe allows those things to take effect and allows the Fed to evaluate that, wait a month or two, and then potentially raise if they need to. I do agree that he definitely took a hawkish position, indicating that there maybe is like two more 
rate hikes expected this year. I don't know that I believe that. I think that's really just posturing at this point. Like I would suspect at this point that they're probably done raising rates unless something dramatic changes and a CPI number or something comes in just way off base or they're forced to do something. But I think the market's reaction were what I would have expected given the news. So all in all, I think it's it's probably good. I mean, when we think back 12 months ago, we're at sub 2%. You know, it is a really dramatic increase. I mean, like we've talked about it every week, it seems like, but it's almost like when you talk about something so much and it's on the news so often, you almost lose sight of how far they raised rates. And it's it's not like they just raised it 150 basis points. We've seen significant increase. And I probably agree with Powell in the sense that all of the effects probably haven't been felt throughout the system. I was interested on the retail sales. If you look at where the, the increase came, it was really a broad-based gain. So sales were up at department stores, sporting goods stores, and furniture stores, among others. So a pretty wide swath of retail uh, sellers that saw increase. I think Haley mentioned kind of a twist to what we had expected. The European Central Bank, to kind of get back to interest rates, they did nudge up their interest rates by a quarter percentage point. And they also indicated that they would continue to push them higher, which sent the euro surging on Thursday. And I think you maybe had a comment or two on uh, what China did with their interest rates as well, Manus. Yeah, China went the other way. China cut rates, was it last night or the night before, which was somewhat of a surprise. So a lot going on there. We talked about Canada raising rates uh, a week or two ago, Europe now raising rates. Uh, just at the same time, the U.S. seems to be ready to tap the brakes. We'll have to see. One remark that came up, at a conference we were at over the last couple of days, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more, this particular conference, because it was a real estate-centric event. But during the course of the conversations we had at this event, several people pointed out to me something which I hadn't really thought of um, last week, but I should have, and that is post-debt ceiling, the Fed had to replenish, or Treasury had to replenish its coffers, which meant a huge amount of issuance uh, was on the table. People were talking a trillion dollars. And, you know, what Powell and the rest of the FOMC members, voting members may have been thinking yesterday is this effect might have had the impact of a rate hike, that you're issuing so many treasuries that you're going to put upward pressure on rates. Why double down right now with a hike when you're not sure exactly how impactful the treasury moves will be over the next couple of weeks. So uh, that was some keen observation from uh, a lot of smart people that uh, I talked to over the last couple of days. I will point out one more thing, which I think was interesting. I think for the last three months, we've seen an awful lot of detachments from the stock market and the bond markets. On days where stocks had been rallying because the Fed was done, Often we saw treasury yields going higher too, as though the bond market was saying, uh-uh, uh-uh, you have it wrong. What we saw today, which is Thursday, June 15th, was stocks went up more than 1% across the board for the major indexes in reaction to the fact that they think the Fed is done. At the same time, bond yields came down considerably today. From the two-year to the 10-year, yields were down about 10 basis points today, which tells me that both markets were in sync. Both sides of the equation are saying, we think the Fed is done or close to done. And even though retail sales were strong, which is inflationary, both equity and debt traders, investors, et cetera, said, we, th we think it's over. 
So you mentioned a conference that we were at this week. That was the C annual conference. We were in New York and we had some takeaways, whether that was from talking with attendees or attending the sessions. Lonnie, let us know what you saw this week. Yeah, so I think there were definitely some some pretty broad themes across the conference. And I actually don't think it was too dissimilar from what we heard back in January. Some things were a little more concrete, at least uh, since the market has played out for six months, while others were still you know, a little bit uncertain just because we haven't really dealt with some of the issues. So uh, a couple of general themes uh, that I took away were that people are still talking about interest rate caps. Interest rate caps have a cost. They've definitely receded from where they were, but they're still significantly higher than they were heading into this crazy Fed uh, run up on rates. Talked a little bit about transaction volumes. Seemed to be a pretty overarching sentiment that everyone agrees transaction volume has slow down significantly pretty much across all asset classes. One of the takeaways was the term price discovery maybe has been replaced with buyer discovery. I mean, does anyone actually want to buy this property? And I think, you know, Manis and I have talked to a lot of reporters over the last couple of months, and that seems to be a theme, not just at the Craft C conference, but more broadly across the, um, the folks that are tracking the CRE landscape is who are going to buy these assets. And then just generally, I think there was a realization that this market is here to stay, that higher rates are here to stay for a while, that issuance is going to be, you know, somewhat muted uh, for the foreseeable future, even though we've had a slight uptick lately. We're just in a phase of the the downturn that there's going to have to be some cleansing of assets that are just over leveraged and not viable. And that's just part of the process. But nobody knows when that's going to happen. There wasn't a sense of true optimism that like the latter half of this year was going to see some sort of reversal. I think people are kind of settling in on the fact that this is probably uh, going to remain for the rest of 23 and maybe in some form of 2024 before we start to see an uptick in activity and, and just overall market confidence. That was certainly the posture, I would say, with a near unanimity among the participants there. Just to put it in perspective, a couple of years ago, and as recently as last year, we were talking issuance for the CMBS and CRE, CLO markets in the 150 billion range, right? That the peak of this market just on the CMBS side came at about 230 uh, billion in 2007. And that particular year, we had a lot of derivative debt too. So when you threw that all in, you're probably closer to 280 or, or 300. But we've been healthy for the last couple of years. We've been running at 100 to 150 for several years, which is a very sustainable level for, for the industry. There was a poll put up at one of the sessions where they asked participants, did they think that the number for 2023 in total, and I think in 2024, they put two different polls up, was going to be above 50 billion. And it was, it was split. You know, some people said yes, some people said no. So we're talking about only half of the market thinking we're going to be at a level, which is a third of where it was just, you know, a year or two ago. So. That was a little disappointing. That was observation one for me. Observation two, I don't know if you got this, Lonnie. I'm eager to hear your response to this. I thought there was a decent amount of complacency. And maybe, you know, the scars of 2008, and we know that this is in 2008, and the scars of COVID are, and the fact that we've come out of each of those with it, with an industry intact and uh, the industry, you know, is resilient. Um, maybe this is why, but it just seemed like 
we know the market's bad, but you know, we all just shrug. And there was it seemed complacent to me that we're looking at, you know, what you think might be 10% delinquencies in offices and a real dearth of transaction volume. It just seemed a little bit not as much a concern as I would have thought. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I think some of that is spurred by the fact that things are just kind of muddling along. Like at least at the lot, you know, on the front end of COVID, everything shut down, the brakes were stopped, like everyone was kind of in crisis mode and panic mode. And this is almost like, you know, the frog in boiling water type of analogy. We're like, it's just kind of gradually eroded here. And we've seen issuance slow down. We've seen delinquency increase. We've seen market sentiment, you know, deteriorate. But there hasn't been anything that's just like jumped out at everyone. And I, I agree with you. I think it's complacency. I think it's, you know, people realizing that some of these impacts are broader than just the actual bricks and sticks. There's quality of life issues. We have certain jurisdictions where people don't feel safe and that's had negative impacts and nobody at the conference can really impact those things. Like they can't make the change to make the market, re, you know, come back to life. And so I, I agree with you. And I think it's, it's a little bit scary when you think about it. Like we need the industry, we need the folks that are doing deals that are underwriting deals to still be passionate, hungry, even if the market's down talking about how it's going to come back. And I did not get a sense of that really from anyone we talked about. Obviously, the distressed buyers and opportunistic folks that are looking for those downtrodden buildings at a discount, they're excited. But but I agree with you that the broader sentiment amongst the group was really one of complacency. I think that's a good way to phrase it. Well, if you're listening to this particular podcast and you think differently, certainly reach out to us via email. Maybe we're misjudging the whole thing. Maybe it's a quiet sense of confidence that we're going to come through this, you know, like we have every other crisis. And, and why worry knowing that we've been a resilient uh, industry for the last 20, 25, 30 years. So hopefully that was what we were getting and we were misreading it. Uh, it. It remains to be seen, but it was wonderful seeing people from across the country come in. We saw people really from uh, all four corners of the U.S. And, you know, we've been in this industry for a long time and it's always wonderful to catch up with everybody. Yeah, and we met a lot of our listeners too. And it's always great to put a face to the names and the emails that we see. So you'll have to stick around to our shout out section to hear us run through that list. Yes, we may have to uh, put Haley on 78 RPM to get through them all. We have a lot of people <laughs> we need to shout out. I'm going to start with an early one, actually. And I won't name the gents by, by name, but I, I wanted to say a big thank you for the two guys in our industry that uh, took me and another gent out golfing yesterday. It was a wonderful day. And I learned something yesterday. It's not about commercial real estate, but I thought it was incredibly unusual. You know, Haley's always talking about how some listeners check us out when they're mowing the lawn or doing the laundry or driving with their kids. This gent listens to us while he's swimming. He has these earphones that I guess are Bluetooth and they cut through the water or whatever. And he's doing his laps listening to the uh, the podcast. I thought... That's the first time I've ever heard that. That is definitely a first. So let's turn to our segment about property type stories that we're watching this week. We wanted to kick it off by starting with a sector we're not always covering, but we are always watching. And this week we had a few stories that are of note in the industrial sector. Yes, we have a couple of really loyal listeners who uh, have mentioned, rightly so, that uh, we give industrial kind of the uh, short end of the stick and don't talk about it very much. That is fairly true. You know what they say about the squeaky wheel, right? And right now, office and retail are the squeaky wheels. 
and, and they get all of our attention. Industrial is the, the least squeaky wheel with delinquencies under 50 basis points. It's hard to find anything terribly noteworthy about the piece, but we did find some things this week and we wanted to talk about them. And I'm going to bring this first one up. I'll kind of read it almost verbatim. So this is from Globe Street from Eric Sherman. And the headline was, bulk industrial demand drops sharply in Q1. Relatively high interest rates and ongoing inflation put brakes on industrial leasing. And here's the number that jumped out at me. And I'll put a little perspective in it. Q1 leasing for tenants that need at least 100,000 square feet of industrial, which in industrial is not very big. That dropped 41% in Q1. That's not year over year, uh, the article points out. It's quarter over quarter, which uh, Mr. Sherman says uh, represents a sudden jam on the brakes. So um, I'll put a few more pieces of uh, context in there, but I wanted to get your hot read, Lonnie, on, on that particular headline. 47% drop between Q4 and Q1. It's a pretty alarming number, but I think if you look at what's taken place over the last couple of years, at some point, the velocity has to slow down. The demand has to slow down. You've seen incredible numbers of industrial space uh, be absorbed, uh, be delivered, seen rents continue to increase, cap rates continue to compress. And so I think it's, you know, it's just supply and demand economics that at some point you're going to get to an equilibrium or you may even get to where demand is less than the supply. And I know you know, just as an example, in Texas, I mean, we've had millions of square foot of space, you know, spec space built. I think in Katy, Texas, just outside of Houston, they have something like 10 or 11 million square foot of uh, spec industrial space that's currently being built out, which is great news for, you know, owners of those spaces that are able to lease them for the last couple of years. But I think now, you know, you're maybe getting into that spectrum of the cycle where if you're contemplating a spec deal, uh, you definitely want to have some stuff signed before you break ground on a couple million square foot industrial project. Whereas for the last couple of years, it was literally find the land, build it, you know, they'll come. I think we're definitely entering a different phase of the cycle. But I would still say, to your point, less than half a percent of delinquency. Um, everything I've seen on Twitter and everything I've seen in our data, rents are still extremely strong. And the demand there, you know, just seems like maybe on the leasing side, the new leasing side has slipped. But I think overall retention and occupancy and everything else still looks really good for the the uh, industrial sector. Yeah, you know, I'll throw out two more comments here, and I'll, I'll throw them out with a pause in between them to let you comment. The first one is that even with the forty seven percent drop, and this kind of underscores a point you made a second ago, the growth has been so extraordinary. Even with the forty seven percent drop, we are only back to twenty twenty one demand. That was a, a staggering part of the story for me. To our listeners' credit that, that wants us to talk more industrial, obviously, that, like you said, the stuff that, that you know, is more headline grabbing is the negative stuff, and that's what we spend a lot of time on. But we could probably do a pretty deep dive in terms of just the rapid ascension of industrial properties across the U.S. over the last three plus years. I mean, if you look at compounded growth rates of, of rental rates, if you look at just the amount of new uh, supply that's been added and the absorption of such, and if you look at just the unprecedented uh, occupancy across basically everywhere in the U.S. that has industrial space, you could do a pretty deep dive case study analysis on how incredible that run is. If you compared that to any other maybe three-year run of other property sectors, um, I think this industrial is is one of those for the books. You know, I mean, we haven't seen this type of 
of increase in rental rates, new space absorption, retention and occupancy, et cetera, et cetera. It's really, really remarkable what we've seen in the last three or four years. So a couple of other points, and this was a great piece, if you could find it. One thing which will probably explain part of the deep drop in Q1, and the article notes that Amazon alone put 53 million square feet of warehouse space over the last six months, shutting down 99 logistics facilities during that time across 30 states. That's an incredible amount of contraction by the firm, which is the biggest occupant of commercial real estate industrial space in the U.S., bulk space. So an amazing thing. I'll throw one last stat out there. Of the total transactions in Q1, this took me by surprise too, Lonnie. Maybe you'll comment on this one. The Midwest was the biggest contributor of new trades in that particular thing, 35%. I wouldn't have expected that one either. Yeah, that would be surprising for me as well. So listen, I think we'll try to do a little more industrial going forward. I'm definitely a little rusty relative to the other uh, property sectors, but I think this article provided some really good insight into just where the market is. And, you know, just like anything else, uh, the Midwest sometimes comes up with surprises, both good and bad. This is one that maybe is, uh, is on the good side. Okay, so let's turn to another property type that we aren't always covering. We do have some data for multifamily that we'd like to cover today. And I think we might need to rev up our bulldozer engine, right, Lonnie? Yeah, so we're definitely, we're, we're bringing back the digging through the data. We've had the uh, the bulldozer stored in one of those really large industrial buildings that Manis was just talking about, and we're, we're firing it up. So I wanted to run through a couple of multifamily stats because we haven't really had a lot of multifamily stories lately, and we're not going to get into, into any individual property stories today, but just to give some overarching macro context of the multifamily uh, landscape. So I'm going to give a couple of summary stats around the multifamily market. And I'm going to look specifically at the top 25 MSAs. So I won't go through each of the top 25, but in terms of the, the results, I am limiting the results to just the top 25 MSAs. So if we look at multifamily, and this would include all multifamily, so student, senior, your conventional garden, low rise, high rise, et cetera. And we wanted to look at the MSAs or metropolitan statistical areas that have uh, the highest level of multifamily delinquency, San Francisco is number one um, at 2.63%, which is still really, really low. Uh, New York, New York, Jersey City comes in second at 0.99% delinquency. Chicago, Naperville is at 0.96. Baltimore is at 0.77. And Pittsburgh rounds out the top five at 0.71. So multifamily, as we've mentioned, has been very resilient um, on the delinquency side. Now, if we pivot over and look at the same top 25 MSAs, and let's get a rank order of uh, MSAs with the highest percentage of properties with debt service coverage less than one. So again, these are properties that are not able to meet their debt obligations through operations. The net operating in income is less than the, 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 the debt service. San Francisco takes the number one heading again. This one's pretty significant, about 13% of all multifamily um, loans in San Francisco have DSCR less than one. Houston comes in number two at 8.57%. The Dallas-Fort Worth market, which has been really resilient, is about 8.5%. San Antonio, New Braunfels is about 7.5%. And Chicago, Naperville is at 7.4%, rounds out the top five. So three of the top five are actually fairly large Texas markets in terms of having properties with DSCR less than one. 
And then lastly, I just wanted to look at weighted average trailing 12-month occupancy. And in this case, I want to look at the ones that have the lowest occupancy percentage across the top 25 MSAs. So San Francisco, uh, looking at the weighted average trailing 12-month occupancy is 88.77%, which is the lowest of the top 25 MSAs. Houston comes in number two at 90.3%. San Antonio, New Braunfels is 91 and a quarter. Phoenix is at 91.45. And Philadelphia comes in rounding out the top five at 91.9%. So all in all, not a bad story. But, you know, we've talked a little bit about some cracks starting to show. I think the takeaway here would be that the San Francisco market is definitely feeling the impacts of the office challenges that we've talked about at length, the retail challenges that we've talked about at length maybe spilling over into lodging, as we heard last week on the pod. And even now, you maybe can make a case that uh, it's impacting the multifamily space in a slightly negative way. Houston, a similar situation where, you know, the delinquency isn't there yet, but debt service coverage is not that strong, and uh, occupancy is the second lowest out of the top 25 MSAs. So let me throw a thesis out there for you, Lonnie. Let's see how you react to this. Clearly, Philadelphia, San Francisco, quality of life issues, a couple of big loans, uh, especially in San Francisco, the Veritas, which is delinquent. That's a real problem out in San Francisco. When you talk about San Antonio and, and you talk about Houston, how much of this low occupancy, low DSCR do you think is a case of fairly new supply, securitized via CRE, CLO during lease up? You know, it's more a function of they're still in the process of stabilizing less that they're oversupplied or on the cusp of, of distress. Wh which one is it, do you think? It's probably a little bit of both in, in the sense of Houston. Houston, clearly, with the lack of zoning regulation, it's always a tough market for multifamily relative to like DFW, Austin, San Antonio that are much more regulated. So in Houston, you could literally build new apartment complexes and a lot of owners there, you know, just have a hard time generating the same type of return that you would in those other markets. Um, so I think there's definitely just, you know, macro concept challenges for Houston. I do think that, you know, some of the CLO stuff is is probably dragging that DSCR down slightly. But Houston, we've seen it with the hotel industry and the office industry where both of those are lagging. And I think Houston kind of goes as the oil and gas market goes. And so I'm not completely surprised there. I think it's some macro, some just, you know, it's boom or bust there on a relative basis. San Antonio is an interesting one because they always were kind of like that sleeper market where they have a, you know, military base there. They have a really large employer base with USAA. Um, it was always a stable multifamily market for the last 20 years. And it's really grown at a pace that we've never seen before because a lot of people were priced out of Dallas. They were priced out of Austin. And so San Antonio had all the same fundamentals of net in migration that those markets had, et cetera, et cetera, but at a much lower price point. And there's been a lot of new construction, a lot of new um, units coming online. And so maybe some of that is just a little oversaturation in the market and people aren't able to achieve their business plans. So I don't think that either of those markets would be a cause for major concern um, in, the, in the medium to longer term. But there's definitely probably some of these series CLO uh, deals. They have inexperienced operators where some of those those properties are going to fall through the cracks and someone's going to have to come in midstream and kind of take them over. I wanted to give one final word. This is a story that's been sitting on my desk for a month. 
kind of embarrassing that I never got it through the pod in in the last four weeks. But I did bring up the name of the of the loan, the Veritas loan, which used to be Lemby out in San Francisco. There was a story about four weeks ago that the debt on that, which totals about a billion dollars uh, on that huge portfolio, which I think was a like a 65% occupancy the last time we looked, that's being shopped and it has been shopped for the last couple of weeks. That will be a very interesting indicator when that debt gets sold for what kind of price people are willing to pay for that. That is uh, deeply underwater in terms of occupancy, in terms of DSCR. And um, certainly we know exactly what's going on in, in San Francisco more broadly. So, you know, we will look for that data point over the coming weeks. Yeah, I actually saw something, Manus, on that one. I think where Veritas was maybe interested in buying the debt themselves. So, like, that's definitely something we'll keep an eye on and, and bring back to the listeners once it gets uh, finalized. And before we move on, we'd like to pause with a message from our sponsor this week, TREP CLO. The team at TREP announced the official launch of our leveraged loan and corporate CLO product and offerings for clients. For our CMBS and CRE clients, now you can come to TREP for the granular data, research, and analysis on the CLO market, all backed by the best-in-class customer service. For anyone new, please visit www.trep.com trep clo to learn more or reach out to us at podcast.trep.com to talk to an expert and see the CLO data in action today. So, Manus, this week we saw a big retail story that we actually sent out as a trading alert. Yes, this is with apologies to Eric B. He's uh, a guy I spoke to this week. Uh, he's a San Francisco, not a original San Franciscanian. Is that what it is? But he has been there for 10 years. And Kurt also out in San Francisco in the, in the Bay Area has told me before that, uh, and sorry, Kurt, that I didn't catch up with you at Crufsey. I I hope that we run into each other. Both have said San Francisco it's not quite as bad as, as the picture we're painting. So uh, I want to give an alternative viewpoint there that they say parts of the city are still quite nice and safe and it's not all bad out there. So, but in the meantime, our trading alert today, which was, or this week was kind of, um, kind of big. Um, Westfield decided to throw in the towel on the San Francisco center. This is a story we've been watching for more than a year. The property backs $560 million in debt split across many uh, CMBS deals, both Conduit uh, and SASB. The problems with this particular property started um, when they lost two office tenants. The property is 240,000 square feet of office. Half the tenant base there left a year and a half ago or so. The remainder or most of the remainder is retail. We've documented over the last um, two or three months that Nordstrom, Old Navy, H&M, and Banana Republic have all picked up and pulled out. Nordstrom was the dominant retailer there, taking up many floors in that particular property. The loss of them was uh, probably the final straw for this particular asset. And even after this news came out, we heard just today that the movie theater there was going to close down. So this is a and, and by the way, the story came from the uh, San Francisco Chronicle. The quote that Westfield put out, we have made the difficult decision to begin the process to transfer the shopping center to our lender to allow them to appoint a receiver to operate the property going forward. So this is going back to the special servicer 
no indication from Westfield that they want to negotiate. And this looks like at some point, uh, the asset will go deed in lieu. Yeah, 1.05 DSCR, 53% occupancy with all the other problems they have out there. I mean, I can understand why uh, why they make this decision. It's uh, it's a challenging center. They're going to have to reposition, turn it around, and it's got the two asset classes in office and retail that are struggling the most. It's This is a really tough slog for somebody, given where they're at with the uh, the current basis. Maybe for somebody at a reduced basis can come in and clean it up, but I uh, I can understand why they made the decision they did. Yeah, and you but you're looking at 53%. That's before... We always have a lagging occupancy number. That's before the movie theater goes. It probably doesn't reflect the Banana Republic or Old Navy. And just to put this in perspective, this particular asset in 2019, 2.23x DSCR, 91% occupancy. So this went into the, the whirlpool very, very quickly. And then we also have a mixed use story this week about a loan heading to special servicing. Yeah, this may have a happier ending. Um, as time goes on, we'll have to see. This is the Green Town Center. It's a property in Beaver Creek, uh, Ohio. The property backs about 120 million in CMBS debt. The property itself uh, is a 700,000 square foot mixed use asset. In 2022, DACR was 121, occupancy was 91%. This is now with the special servicer and the borrower is requesting a maturity extension. So kind of the polar opposite of what we're seeing with the Westfield. Westfield, no inclination to negotiate a willingness to give back the keys. Here, the borrower wants to see if they could work something out. Maybe should we do a, a 30 second educational segment? Not all mixed use is the same, right? In this particular case, we're talking probably some residential, mostly retail and a little bit of office, but across the entire market, um, mixed use can, use can mean a lot of different things, right? It can mean something for inner city CBD office and something entirely different for the suburbs. Yeah, so it's interesting that you bring that up, Manus, because on this month's special servicing report that we put out, we actually noticed that there was a significant uptick in mixed use buildings transferring. And it gave us an opportunity to highlight, you know, that we have a lot of mixed use property data in our data set. So if you're interested in seeing some of that, please feel free to reach out. We're more than happy to jump on a call or share some information with you. But to your point, man, it's mixed use. In a traditional sense, like when someone says mixed use, I automatically jump to the, the retail multifamily uh, type of asset. But there's a lot of additional mixed use opportunities out there um, in the marketplace, depending on geography, depending on what's norm in that market. Um, and it's really interesting. If you talk to most multifamily developers that have mixed use components, they would tell you it's due to zoning requirements or regulation. Uh, lenders don't like mixed use. It seems like lenders don't like mixed use uh, retail multifamily and the multifamily units generally have a higher value than what the retail does, especially street level retail and especially post COVID. Um, that becomes problematic for a lot of these operators of trying to backfill that retail space at any type of reasonable rent when they could potentially just lease those out as apartments that they were able to build them that way. So uh, mixed use is definitely an interesting subclass, I would say, of properties and probably don't get enough time on the pod either in the sense that we don't talk about them that much. And it's kind of hard to comp, you know, all mixed use together because there are so many different flavors of, of what that looks like. So you were kind of talking about, I guess we would call it a lifestyle 
center where you have, you know, lots of apartments, but also lots of restaurants and retail and maybe a little bit of office. But given your experience, when you have, let's say, a New York City 24-story apartment building with a CVS in the lobby, do you think of that as apartments or do you think of that as mixed use in your, you know, as you're kind of sizing up how to define something? Yeah, so I think the academic in me, the theoretical component of, of my background would say that it is mixed use if it has something as an alternative use to the uh, to the primary function, it's, it's going to be mixed use. But in practice, I think if it just has a CVS or it has a small component of retail relative to the overall square footage, then I think the market probably treats that more as a multifamily asset with a small retail component. So they would say, we have a multi-asset with a CVS, not we have a mixed use development, you know? And so if there's you know, 100,000 square feet or 200,000 square foot of ground level retail and then apartments above, that probably engenders more of like a mixed use moniker from the market. But if it's one or two small retailers or just on in the lobby or whatever, I think it would it would be treated as more of a multifamily. That's how I would view it, at least. So let's move on to office. We have a lot of stories there this week. Yes, I'll try to do, as that gentleman wrote in last week, my school closing pace, you know, the uh, winter storm school closing AM radio pace as I go through these. So uh, this first one, the Chicago Tribune, Pru Plaza in Chicago, which is no longer known as Pru Plaza, it's now known as One Two Pru. The owner of that uh, has asked for a four or five year maturity extension. Uh, it's a 2.2 million square foot asset Backs about $400 million in CMBS debt. Waxing America Real Estate Group uh, acquired the property about five years ago for $700 million. The asset does not mature until 2025, but the owners are trying to get ahead of this and have asked for an extension. We'll see what the special servicer says. Story number two, this one comes from the Commercial Observer. Gas Company Tower, you'll probably remember this one. Brookfield, this was kind of the first story we had in the office space that problems were going to be bigger than people were anticipating. About three months ago, Brookfield said they would not be exercising their option to extend the maturity date. They were going to look to default on the loan and give the property back. Gas Company Tower and World Trade Center parking garage, those are the two assets. Uh, it backs a 2021 single asset deal. The twist this week is that the Los Angeles Housing Department has signed on for 300,000 square feet uh, in that office building. The office itself, 1.4 million square feet. So this is about, you know, a 22% square footage that's going to be replenished. Occupancy was 73%. So this could move the needle. It seems to have come since a receiver was put into the property. And it'll be interesting to see if this would uh, caused Brookfield to have a fresh look at this particular um, asset. In Houston, one riverway has gone to special servicing. This is a 500,000 square foot property at 777 Post Oak Boulevard. The property backs about 72 million in CMBS debt. It had one of the big oil companies, I think, as their primary tenant, maybe Occidental a couple of years ago, and they lost them, which led to DSCR falling below 1.0x. Uh, in Atlanta, NCR is looking to sublease about 270,000 square feet. This comes from BizNow Atlanta. Uh, the interesting thing there is that 
uh, NCR only took this space about five years ago. So they took an entire 750,000 square foot brand new campus, uh, and now they're looking to shed about a third of it. That's happening because NCR is now being split up into two different companies. Uh, in St. Louis, Bank of America Plaza, uh, that loan has gone to special servicing. It's a $45 million loan, a 750,000 square foot property on Market Street. The problem there is probably that uh, BO, uh, Bank of America is looking to leave. They had been looking to sublease about two thirds of their space there. Uh, in Houston, the Greenway Plaza, $465 million loan. The borrowers granted a forbearance last year, which pushed the maturity out until July, 2023. The owners of the property have noted that refinancing options remain limited. The borrower does not think that refinancing is likely and that it is no longer able to perform under the forbearance agreement, which ends very soon. Lastly, uh, another Chicago story, uh, the owners of the Aon Center are looking to extend that loan. We knew that this was the case, but there wasn't much specificity behind it. Uh, now, recent special servicer comments indicate that the owners there would like to get a four-year extension. So whenever we see these extension stories, that's probably the glass half full. It means that the owner uh, wants to hold on to this, probably willing to put in some money into it, and is certainly better than the alternative, which is what we're seeing with the Westfield uh, in the retail segment and with other offices in Los Angeles uh, and in San Francisco. And that's all I have for school closings on this February <laughs> blizzard day. Uh, nothing like a February blizzard day in the middle of June, but I think... Uh... You know, it's interesting. I, I would suspect we're going to see more of those extensions than we're going to see not of those extensions. So I think the Aon deal is maybe one that kind of signifies what we're going to start seeing from some of these others, even though the service for commentary and some of the other stuff is, you know, pointedly negative in some of these instances. One other thing I wanted to add, it's made some headlines. Twitter's about to be evicted from its Colorado office space. So they have a, an office space that I don't think they ever actually occupied or open. They haven't paid uh, rent, and um, and it looks like they're going to be, you know, evicted from their Boulder, Colorado office space. So, you know, there's been some headlines around Twitter not paying in San Francisco as well. So maybe this is, uh, you know, kind of a small office that maybe transitions into, you know, Twitter having some larger scale issues with office space in the future. So we have a programming note this week. Um, we released our mid-year magazine with Commercial Real Estate Direct on all of our channels and at the Crefsey event. So if you're not familiar with this magazine, it's a half-year recap of the activity in the CRE finance and CMBS markets. It has a lot of deep digests on what's happening in office and all of the property sectors with a lot of TREP and CRE data backing it up. So if you'd like to read that, you can send us an email to podcast.trep.com and we'll send you a copy. And now turning to shout outs. So starting with all of our clients and listeners who we met at C, we wanted to thank you again for coming by and sharing your sentiment, telling us how you listen to the podcast and giving us your thoughts and feedback. So thank you, Omar E., who also congratulated us on Twitter about our 200th episodes. Thank you, Omar. Will X, Bobby T, Cameron S from NYU, Amber S, Arthur F, Kara R, John T, Ella, and the team at Deckert. Nathan B., a client and an old student of Lonnie's. 
Nick D, David A, who actually likes your Drake references, Lonnie, so there you go. Vishal S, who is a pod listener who turned trip client, and he actually came over to us to tell us that he's closed two deals in the six months of having trip. So that was great to hear, and we love the support there. Barney M gave us some commentary and sentiment about some malls that he's watching. Mike G, Jane R, Darren E, Susie S on our team met with a lot of her clients there who she passed along their sentiment and their shout out. So Sonia N and Stephen S, she said that they got members of their team listening and Ben K. And some of these people may be covered in the names and initials that you just gave, but uh, I met a couple of gents from Salt Lake City. A pleasure meeting you. Thanks for listening. And a couple of students, one from Fordham and one from Baruch. Uh, we've had success with uh, employees from both of those institutions, some great uh, Baruch students and some great Fordham students over the years. So thank you to everybody who uh, met up with us over the last few days. And other shout outs from this week. Our own Lucius C sent us a comment on last week's curveball that managed through you, Lonnie. So he had some comments about what he's heard from talking with different office brokers. Jake M said he loves the pod. More from Susie. She sent us other other shout outs, one from Andy B and one from Nikhil S who listens all the way from India and said he finds the podcast very helpful. Aaron B, Bob G said he really enjoys the podcast and as an appraiser, he finds it incredibly worthwhile. A Bay, Eric C and Stephen T said he just started listening in this past month but he's been a CRE lender for the past 16 years and he thinks it's great content. Then we also had a systemic bank risk report that we released last week and a ton of you reached out wanting it. So thank you very much to everyone who emailed us asking for it. You could still get it if you email us um, this week. And then on Twitter, Mark S sent us a story about Brookfield being sued and facing a lawsuit over a downtown LA property. And Sharp on Sat said the podcast has been really educational. So thank you to everyone for reaching out. And before we close today, we do have two fathers on this podcast. So I wanted to take a moment to say happy Father's Day to you guys, Madness and Lonnie. I hope you have a great weekend with your families. And to all of our listeners out there, we hope you're either being celebrated or celebrating with a dad in your life. So Haley, I know you probably got on this really early because you're a very organized young person. What did you get your dad? What is, I mean, or you don't want to give it away. Like he's going to listen and that would ruin the surprise. Is that, you know, what, where are we headed with this one? I see what you're doing here, Manus. For our listeners, Manus is making fun of me because I may have forgot about Father's Day until right before this podcast. But in my world, you can't go wrong with a Home Depot gift card and some new socks. So they think that's the route I'm going this weekend. All right, Lonnie, what are you, what are you, uh, what are you hoping for under the uh, Father's Day tree? I'm hoping that just have a good weekend, maybe get a day or so off. I usually work six, seven days a week. So maybe for Father's Day, I'll get a couple of new Callaway golf shirts or something and uh, hang out with the kiddos and have a great day. Yeah, so let's wrap up by saying uh, thank you to all those fathers out there, those listeners. Have a great day. Enjoy some golf on uh, Sunday. We got the U.S. Open this weekend, and I hope you all have a wonderful weekend and, and celebration. And with that, we'll close. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or just a comment, send an email to podcast at trip.com and subscribe to the Tripwire podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening, and stay well. All right.